This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. G'day. Uh, I'm Richard Glover from 702 ABC Sydney and on this beautiful Sydney day, I want to welcome you to our most fabulous venue to talk to Alexi Sale about his fabulous book, Thatcher Stole My Trousers. Uh, he comes from Liverpool. Who else has been to Liverpool in England? Because I, I, only, I, only, I only went recently, and here's my secret. It's not just Alexi, they're all quite funny. <laughs> so. I'm there recently and there's, uh, I'm, I walk into town and I need to find this particular bookshop and I can't find it. And there are these two ambulance officers sitting in an ambulance and I go up to them, I say, do you know the way to you know, Smith Street? And they say, oh, sure. And one of them starts getting out of the ambulance so that they can show me the way personally. And I, I, I say, no, no, I, I didn't mean to bother you, really. You know, j- just uh, directions would be fine. And, they, and he said to me, oh, we're just sitting here waiting for someone to die. They're funny. And, and, and same day, we're in some pub and there are these two wizened uh, scousers, old men, and they're teasing each other like old men do. And uh, one of them says, you know, that I've got, got so many wrinkles. Um, and the guy says, they're not wrinkles, they're laugh lines. And the other one says, naught's that funny. So, with that in mind, that he may be the least funny Liverpudlian ever, please welcome Alexi Sale! That was a fucking terrible Liverpool accent. (laughs) (laughs) It was the right half of the country. Um, let's, we'll go back to Liverpool. Let, let's go to this amazing, amazing moment where two bits of history uh, happen to coincide. Thatcher gets elected, and within days, <laughs> I think she's days before the comedy store opens. Yeah, yeah, as if it was all planned <laughs> by, a, a, by a kind of, you know, a jolly god. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, no, well, it, it, I, I don't know, I don't know what the significance of that is, but yeah, it's certainly, uh, you know, it, it, it makes a handy, mm. Mm. <laughs> makes a handy kind of chapter for historians. Well, <laughs> here's, the, here's the tough thing, would, would, it, would it all have happened if it, do you, do you owe everything to Margaret Thatcher? Um, Thatcherism would have happened without Thatcher, but it wouldn't have happened without me, I think. I mean, <laughs> I mean, as a Marxist, I'm supposed to believe that everything is about the irreconcilable forces of history, but, you know, I really don't believe that. But, um, I mean, I think that, I mean, talking about alternative comedy, I mean, what I say in the book is that, um, you know, the, 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 the kind of the revolution in British comedy would have happened with or without me, but it wouldn't have happened in that place uh, and at that time, you know, and it would have had a slightly different character. And the same is true about Britain, that the, the change from, um, you know, the kind of, you know, the corporatist kind of social welfare, post-war kind of 
contract to a more, you know, freebooting kind of society would have happened with or without Thatcher, but it might not have been so fucking nasty. Mm. Mm. Uh, but here's where the great man in, in history theory is, is interesting, because as you say, the Marxist view of history is often that these forces will produce a result whatever the individuals are. But I don't know if that's necessarily true of this particular alternative comedy scene that gets going in 1979. You're the MC of the comedy store and it falls to you to kind of insist on the parameters. And one of the parameters is that we'll form a sort of humour that is not sexist or racist. Yeah. And it's actually a big, it's a big change. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, it was, it was our inclination anyway, but obviously it was, um, you know, it was also a reaction against all those previous guys who were those, because I think you had a similar thing here, like working men's clubs, you had the RSLs here, and, you know, you just got these vile, horrible, racist, misogynistic uh, comedians, and we wanted to be a contrast to that, plus we all, you know, it marked us out as being different, but we all, all also, um, you know, thought we were, we were morally right. I mean, I say about... I mean, the Jim Davidson, I don't think he's that well-known over here, but I, was, I mean, I do have a certain respect. He was with this kind of cockney... Uh, he had this Jamaican character called Chalky White. And... Um, and uh, Lenny Henry, I know, comes out here quite a lot, and poor Lenny is tormented with guilt because... Uh, he, when he was 15, he was in the Black and White Minstrels, which was this terrible, you know, this minstrel show that he used to have on the BBC. I, I told Lenny to tell people that he was um, reforming them from the inside. <laughs> and by the time he left, they were the Black and White Panthers. <laughs> <laughs> zing, 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 went the trolley. <laughs> Burned down the racist white power structure. <laughs> Um, but so there's this comic called Jim Davidson. I would say that, uh, you know, I, mean, I do I have a great respect for any uh, comedian. I think we have all, you know, we have all suffered the same rejection and the same, you know, I, I think of us all as being uh, soldiers in the same war, you know, except Jim Davidson was in the Waffen SS. <laughs> so there was, you know, those, those, um, those guys, you know, those working men's club guys, they, they were just vile. But it was also... You know, I think a lot we'd come out... You know, it was about... It was just about the rightness of, of attacking you know, powerful targets, not powerless targets, I think. You mm. know, the, the, mm. And yet, I, I mean, I very much imposed, you know, imposed that very strictly. And sometimes, if one of them kind of old-school guys turned up uh, to the comedy store and they were doing well, I'd still yank them off anyway, you know. <laughs> they had this gong, and I'd be at the back going, gong, gong, gong! Yeah, get him off. And they're going, woo, quite enjoying his racism, but... Uh, <laughs> Tell us about the, you describe it as a febrile atmosphere in the comedy store. It could be some nights quite, uh, you know, uh, attentive, other nights like a riot. Yeah, well, it was, I mean, it was, I mean, it was very uh, lively. I mean, you say febrile, I mean, it was in a strip club in Soho, uh, a a topless bar, and the girls used to put their T-shirts on at midnight. and, and Soho then was really, you know, I mean, central London then, I mean, particularly Soho was still very, you know, was still a kind of criminal area, a lot of prostitution. And so I say, I say in the book, you could, you, could, you could drive into central London then and park your car uh, wherever, you, wherever you wanted, but chances were when you came back to it, it'd be on fire. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, so the comedy store was in this strip club and, you know, a lot of people had just come along... Um, 
for a, for a late drink, really, you know, because it was um, it was you know it was a place where you could just get a late drink, and so. And also there was, there was this gong, you know, which really is giving the audience authority is not a good idea. So, um, <laughs> speaking as an authoritarian Marxist, <laughs> democracy has to be amongst the tightly held <laughs> band of fanatics, you know. <laughs> so you had this gong and then people would come on and the, if the audience didn't like them, they'd shout gong and I'd come on and bang the gong and they'd have to get yeah, off. Yeah. And, um, so that made for an extraordinary kind of wild uh, atmosphere, you know. And it was just yet started at 12, went through till 4 a.m., you know. And again, I mean, London didn't have, um, uh, you know, didn't have that 24-hour culture then, you know. I mean, Heathrow Airport used to close at 4 on a Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of. So it wasn't, you know, the, the fact that it was late night was also, you know, really um, transgressive, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that character you come up with during that period, um, famously people have described Alexei's performance character as one of the only comedians in the world who didn't want the audience to like them. Yeah, so yeah. So does that very aggressive character come out of the need to control this febrile audience? Well, he kind of, yeah, I mean, I think already beforehand I'd been doing, because nobody, because, because that idea of the kind of political, uh, you know, kind of lifestyle comic, I'd, I, I'd been touring with a partner, really, and, um, but because there was, no, there was no real tradition of that in Britain, and so often, you know, I would be, uh, be met with kind of confusion, uh, you know, in its politest, expressed through violence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so um, I, I'd always uh, kind of, uh, you know, I'd already developed this very aggressive kind of because I, I, it's also I think I found what worked, but also it was a way of having to control these very difficult audiences. And so that night, the comedy store, that opening night, that aggressive. Um, but also, on, I wanted to be, I mean, it was, I mean, I never really thought it through, but, I, you know, the, 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 the traditional MC would say, you know, you're going to love these acts, you know, and I'd say, well, you're not, because most of them are shit. <laughs> um, and um, I just thought it was much more honest to do that, really, you know, and so, uh, uh, and it was true. He's not just aggressive, though, is he? He's, he's this very interesting character. He's a, a working-class intellectual who can talk about Proust at the same time, and if the argument about Proust doesn't go well, he'll punch you in the face. Yeah. It's a very, where, where does he come from, that guy? Well, he, from Liverpool, I mean, that's the, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, literally and figuratively. I mean, he, he um, because, I mean, that what you describe in your Yorkshire, Lancaster, <laughs> Dusseldorfian accent. <laughs> <laughs> Was, uh, but Liverpool was both a, a town of autodidacts, people who, who, who you know, men who'd, who'd missed out on a university education but had read fiercely. But it was also a fighting town. So you would, you'd, 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 you know, you'd, you'd come into the, be a fight in the pub and you'd say, what are they fighting about? And they'd say, the legacy of the Austro-Hungarian <laughs> Empire. <laughs> you know. Somebody asserted that the treatments of the Balkans, you know, was... <laughs> 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 Serbian nationalism directly lent to the... 
Uh, <laughs> and, and none so than in your, in your family. So uh, is, a, is a very political family you grew up in? Yeah, um, uh, my, both my parents were in the Communist Party and um, stayed true to that too. I mean, my mother you know, died a couple of years ago and she, would always, she always insisted uh, that, uh, you know, she never rejected the, the Soviet experiment. The most she would say was, mistakes were made. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, about but, 20 million of them. Well, uh, that's what she said. Well, she used to say, well, you can't make an omelette without murdering 40 million people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, but yeah, no, it was, it was a highly, I mean, apart from, yeah, it was a highly politicised kind of uh, household, you know. But you know, look, you know, intellectual books, books all over the house and all that stuff. Ah, you know. But uh, childhood holidays to... Yeah, sunny, well, sunny Czechoslovakia. Yeah. <laughs> well, my dad worked on the railways, so um, we got free rail travel up to the borders of the Soviet Union, and uh, we kind of go up and look through the barbed wire. Oh, look, the workers' paradise. Um, <laughs> but my dad, uh, my dad. Uh, so he, 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 at the Brussels Exposition in 1958, he was, we went to see that and he was really impressed by the Czechoslovak pavilion and so he vowed to take us the next year to Czechoslovakia. So 1959, you know, we went to Czechoslovakia and it's a bit, I mean, the whole Lion Kitten, it was a bit like North Korea or something, wasn't it? I mean, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was, we were probably f some of the very few Britons in, in, in Czechoslovakia at the time, really. And it was just a, an extraordinary experience to spend your summers in, in, in Eastern Europe was just, uh, you know. I mean, one of the things that my parents liked, you know, like, one of the things they really liked, they're kind of, uh, they're kind of tourists. What they liked the best was the site of a massacre. <laughs> <laughs> like, they liked, they don't, we always, I can remember vividly being taken, we'd always go to, like, these, like, bullet, like in Paris, we wouldn't go to like the, the Louvre or something or, or the Eiffel Tower. We'd go to these bullet-pocked walls, you know, down a side street with little... And they'd say, that's where the entire basketball team was <laughs> machine-gunned, you know. And so, a lot of the time, when we were in Czechoslovakia, a lot of the time seemed, we seemed to be spent... You know, with the murder of Richard Heydrich, which I think they're just making a film of the killing of Richard Heydrich, and the, the Nazis, in the butcher of Prague, and in response, the, the Nazis levelled this village called Lidice, you know, and changed the course of the river. And we used to spend all our time going to fucking Lidice, you know, not like, oh, we're off to Lidice again, you know, oh, great concentration camp, oh. Oh, that'll be my ninth this week. <laughs> so it was, very, it was not just different, it was not just different, country, but the sites you went to see were, were, were uh -huh. different as well, and so that was, you know, that's, I guess that's formative, you know. I, I, love, the, I love the way the, <laughs> the normal banalities of childhood, though, are rendered through this prism, uh, you know, something like forgetting a Mother's Day present. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, that was a great triumph that I, my mother said to me, why haven't you bought me a Mother's Day present? And I said, but mother, you told me that Mother's Day is simply a construct of the floral industrial complex. <laughs> Allied with the neo-con hallmark card making. Uh, it's Father's Day today, in fact, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Another, don't, don't, it's suppressing the working classes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
If any of you have bought a drill for your dad, fucking set fire to it. <laughs> Don't play their game. <laughs> um, you lost your dad effectively to Alzheimer's yeah. from when you were about 12. I mean, it, yeah. it, as, 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 tragic, as tragic as Alzheimer's always is, he doesn't die for a long time, but he, you lose him effectively then. And your mother really is a very rage-filled person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and my dad had been, I mean, she was bad enough when my dad was still healthy, but, but, but when, by the time uh, when he started to fade, she started to expand into this kind of enormous mm. uh, kind of Jabba the Hutt kind of uh, <laughs> Jewish mother, size, Jabba the Hutt-sized Jewish mother. Um, yeah, and she, I mean, like my dad there, uh, me, me dad was, was a lollipop man, and, um, and then my mother, after he got ill, my mother took it over. And, and, but except, you know, the deal usually with a lollipop woman lady is that you, you stay like on one corner. Or one, but my mother gave herself a much more roving brief. <laughs> <laughs> and so no driver was safe anywhere. <laughs> anywhere in North Liverpool, she'd be like, you know, day or night. <laughs> And uh, she, I mean, she did just become, you know, uh -huh. you know, I mean, and I, t I tell the story, but, but also she'd been involved in medical aid for Vietnam. She, and she, she basically thought that she'd won the Vietnam War for the, uh, and, uh, but one day she, because of the game, because of the train thing, so you never, because she got free travel to London when I was a student in London, she'd turn up day or night, you know, and um, I mean, I, I made the mistake that the first time I gave a dinner party, when I was a student, I didn't know how to cook. So my mother came down from Liverpool with a chicken, <laughs> cooked it, and then went back to Liverpool. <laughs> but that gave a carte blanche to turn up. And there's a... We were walking around Bayswater one day, and she suddenly said, uh, oh, yeah, oh, I know some people who live here. And she ran across the road and hammered on this door. And it said, on a brass plaque, it said, Legation of the Republic of North Vietnam. And this Vietnamese bloke opened the door, and he went, oh, hello, Molly. <laughs> Thanks for winning the yeah, war. Yeah, that was like, yeah. Uh, the ambassador's having a nap, but we'll get him up, you know. And uh... Uh. there's something strange with comedians and parental neglect of various sorts. I, I had a chance to talk to Cleese and Idol the other day. Um, Cleese with a mad mother, much like yeah, yours, and, yeah. a, and a disappearing father. Eric Idle, I think the parents were around, but they sent him to boarding school at some ridiculous age. Eddie Izzard, the mother dies at 12. Well, I mean, that's that, there's that line. I mean, I don't know, you know, somebody said, you know, show me a comedian and I'll show you somebody whose, mother, whose father died when they were 11, mm. you know, and that's, in my case, it's also true that he certainly started to fade away. And so that, that I mean, no, I mean, I, I guess the point is that nobody would do this that job without a, you know, a great deal of uh, disturbance in the family. Nobody, nobody normal wants to stand on a stage and shout at 3,000 people or whatever. But what's know. the connection between parental disappearance and that? I think what it is is that um, if, the, you know, if the parent doesn't handle the other partner, you know, dying, you, you're presented with a sense of chaos, of fear, and so the way that you you deal with that fear as you develop, you want to control something and, and you know, comedians are, you know, to, in, to control a big room is, 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 is a, you know, is, is, you're getting the kind of so I couldn't, safety. I couldn't control know. childhood, so I'll control. Controlness, okay. yeah, 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 mm. uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you don't do this instantly, though, do you? you so it's, a, it's a quite a, uh, a, a lengthy process. You come down from Liverpool. Do you want me to do the accent again? Or, <laughs> um, you, come, you come down from Liverpool. The first thing is art school, isn't it? Yeah, I went to art school. Um, I got into, well, first of all, I did two years foundation at uh, a little college called Southport. And um, I was actually kind of hitchhiking around Europe when, uh, um, so my mother went to me interview. I was never entirely sure whether, when, on the first day of term, whether they respected me or Molly, really. But, uh, uh, they respected you and feared Molly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was a performance artist. Um, so, yeah, I, I wanted a further education, and so, yeah, I, because I, I'm not academic, but I could paint and draw, so I, I got a place at Chelsea School of uh, Art, yeah. Uh, a couple of things there. One, you move in with a Pakistani friend. Palestinian. Pal pa sorry, Palestinian <laughs> friend from Liverpool, yeah. who is running this sort of group house, and it's so much like, I mean, we'll get on to the young ones, but it's so much like the young ones, <laughs> looks like a paradise. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'd known Wasim in, um, in Liverpool, and he'd moved to London, and... Uh, yeah, I just, uh, when I, I, you know, he, he, we had this vile basement flat and he, um, uh, you know, he had the bed with like one or two girlfriends and I had a patch of floor at the bottom of the bed, I think, and the, the floor on either side was taken up by other Arabs, you know. <laughs> but it also, it gave me, I suppose, I mean, obviously I still, um, you know, one of the causes that I support is, is still the struggle of the Palestinian people and, uh, yeah, with my help, I think it's going really well. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should have that shit sorted out <laughs> sometime. Um, but, you know, it gave me... I mean, it was a, it was a, a strange introduction to living in London, you know, these... Um, yeah, they were, they, were, they were in a lot of the radical kind of uh, secular Marxist uh, Palestinian uh, resistance groups, you know, generally no longer exist. Well, I suppose it's still fatter and stuff, but I've been, you know, kind of subsumed by uh, Islamism. But, it, 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 you know, it was, um, it was a kind of interesting world to be living with these Palestinians, these strange, exotic, but also deeply damaged young men, you know. Uh, and then also be at Chelsea School mm. of Art, this kind of... I mean, I didn't know that, like... It shocked me when I got to Chelsea that it was full of posh people. <laughs> I, I, mean, on I mean, I thought, who's going to be at a painting college in Chelsea, you know? <laughs> And there's, and there's a story in the book about I mean, on my first, in the first week, um, we're in an art history lecture and, and it's the, the lecturer put up a slide of a Van Gogh painting and a girl in my class said, oh yes, I know that, the originals in our flat in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> what he got in the living room, you know, fucking, I don't know, the uh, mystical adoration of the mystic lamb by Brod. I mean, that girl's tro untroubled by her wealth, but there are other rich kids who are very troubled by their wealth, aren't they? Um, yeah, well, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, up until that point, the only, I mean, one of the things, they just seem terribly exotic. I mean, the Palestinians and, you know, these, these kind of revolutionaries who spoke 78 languages and all that, they seem quite banal in comparison to these exotic... Because the only, the only posh people I represented, 
representations of posh people I'd seen before. It was like cartoons in the, in the Communist Party paper. <laughs> and they, they'd all like have like big fat men with top hats with dollar signs on them, you know. <laughs> Grinding the face of a peasant. And so... <laughs> when they turned out to be, some of them to be nice, it was kind of shocking. But also, yeah, that I... <laughs> That idea that they were all so troubled, I think. I don't know, yeah, it fascinated uh -huh. me. And it was, it was, they were terribly exotic. Yeah, I mean, you also write brilliantly, I think, about this whole world of, of art and of performance art and of art movies and of, of the way that, it, it, if even for a painter, it was more about the talk about yeah, the art rather yeah. than the doing well, yeah, of the art. Yeah, well, you had to say, you know, well, there's, you know it's, it's essentially a critique of uh, French colonialism. <laughs> yeah. This would be said of a kind of pile of fire extinguishers covered in glue. <laughs> and the other thing that we got a lot of, which was very formative for me, was we had a lot of, of performance art. We had, there was this group called Reindeer, Reindeer Work, I remember. And... Um, this, we sat for like three hours and watched this guy, like he tied himself up with splints, like bandages, and he tried to pour himself a cup of tea, kind of <laughs> spilt kind of scalding tea. But again, you weren't allowed to laugh at it. <laughs> you had to go, yeah, I see. this is fucking, you know, so this is, this is really funny. And, you know, I, I think I took a lot of that kind of disjoint, this, that kind of disturbance into uh, my own stand-up, uh, really, uh. you know. But there's an exciting moment early on when you join this group, the Threepenny something or other. The Threepenny Theatre. The Threepenny Theatre. And you suddenly understand that you find performance intoxicating. Yeah. Well, it was the first, yeah, I... I, I, um, I mean, it's the first time I sort of felt at home in, a, in an organisation, being in a in a theatre group. And also, yeah, it just, I knew intuitively um, how it worked, you know. I just, I particularly comedy, and one of the things that used to annoy me was that the, um, the actors, the other actors in the show would get a laugh one night, and, but then they, they'd say, well, I got a laugh last night, but tonight I'm going to perform it as if I'm a Serbian peasant. <laughs> and of course, that wouldn't get a laugh at all. I think, why do you fucking, you know how it gets a laugh. Do it like that every night, you know. Do the, and I, you know, as soon as I found where the laugh was, I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd replicate that every night. But actors kind of like to fuck about with stuff. And, uh, and, and so that was, I think that was an early indication of also where my, hmm. you know, where, where my inclinations lay was, was, was towards comedy. Because I, I really, it really irritated me that they wouldn't get the, hmm. you know. I mean, there's another difference between you and the others, which is that occasionally someone shouts out from the audience, and of course it freaks everyone mm. else out, but you shout back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean... Yeah, I guess, I mean, that, but that's, I guess that's the comedic in, in, instinct as well, yeah, I mean... Uh, and why, you know, why be panicked by uh, the audience? Don't think in. <laughs> I, had, I used to do, um, yeah, because my audiences were so wild, I used to have a load of prepared put-downs, you know, and I think years ago I was doing a gig in Bristol and a bloke, I did a gag and a bloke in the audience uh, shouted out, you said that the last time you were here. So I used one of my prepared put-downs, which was, well, you're a daft twat to pay to hear it again then, aren't you? <laughs> He said, you said that last time as well. <laughs> Heckler one, comedian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I went, yeah. oh, you went. Uh, 
But yeah, you know, why not talk uh, back, you know? After the, uh, after the comedy store, you start touring these venues, both uh, um, yourself and with others, and then it morphs into the, the comic strip, which we'll talk about. So you're going out, taking these things on, a, on the road. At a time when stand-up really, it's been developed in America, and you've got the uh, northern working club tradition you talked about, but in England, it's not developed at all. Indeed, when you go to Edinburgh Festival, one of the reviews says, I found this show really strange. They, there was just a microphone and a guy speaking into it. Yeah. As if the whole idea of stand-up was... And this is probably 1981 or 1980, something. 1980, yeah. 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 And we, me and Tony Allen were the only stand-up comedians uh, on the Edinburgh Fringe, if you can imagine such a thing. And uh, now, actually, I was up there a couple of weeks ago, and now it's entirely... The Fringe is entirely the children of my generation of comics. You know, like... Uh, like Griffiths Jones' daughter, or yeah, yeah. Jennifer Saunders' daughter is there. They're all, and they're all doing comedy. And I think, well, that's kind of, why don't you get your kids to fucking do something useful, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Although I, would be, I suppose I would, it would be disturbing if, if Mr. Bean's son was your gynecologist, wouldn't it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and Dr. Atkinson will see you now. <laughs> <laughs> the comic strip uh, is very important, though. It's this weird place. Uh, you mentioned the comedy store is, is, is in Soho. Mm. Uh, the, the comic strip is even more intense than this. It shares premises with the Paul Raymond Review Bar. Festival of Erotica, yeah. yes. Um, uh, yeah, well, we, you know, when we moved to set up our own place, moved away from the comedy store, and, and, and Peter Richardson took that core of performers the later became the kind of Young Ones um, comic strip uh, group. You know, he wanted it to be in another strip club because he felt that that... Because one of the things we wanted to distinguish ourselves from, I think, was subsidised theatre, you know. And if we'd done it in a, in a pub, you know, a room above a pub in Battersea or somewhere, then it would have had the appearance of being like that fringe kind mm -hmm. of theatre. And so... Um, uh, you know, it was. Uh, it, it seemed vital that it, we were in a strip club, and again, it, uh, we still had that loose kind of, uh, you know, air. So, well, the the the, the bouncers at Raymond's Review Bar, because there was two. There was a festival erotica, and then there was us, and they would. Uh, so all people, they said, anybody who smelt a beer would go in. Uh, you know, would go in our show, and then anybody who smelt of aftershave would go in. Um, <laughs> but also, they would force all Japanese into the festival of erotica, and so one night, Ryuchi Sakamoto of the Yellow Magic Orchestra, you know, did, he tried to come to the, uh, the comic strip and they're going, no mate, Festival of Erotica. <laughs> <laughs> well, I composed the music for Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Now, Festival of Erotica, you get in the fucking, Festival of Erotica, you mate, get in there, get in there. <laughs> <laughs> Yellow Magic Orchestra, now fuck off, get in there, you mate. All right, this is one of those moments though, um, a little bit like, you know, the, the Monty Python moment where they all come together, because it's an amazing list of people at the comic strip, just, just, Describe the yeah. scene there and the people yeah. you meet. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's, I mean, again, that's another. I mean, it's Rick Mail, Adrian Edmondson, Peter Richardson, and Nigel Planer, so, um, you know, Neil from the Young Ones. Um, and then Jennifer Saunders and Dawn French, mm. you know, I mean, who ultimately surpassed us all, the fuckers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> never saw that coming. I mean, the. <laughs> I would not have been so patronising to those two girls if I'd known. Oh, hello, yes, you do your little comedy. They're going... 
I'm gonna fucking have a movie one day. I'm gonna... Yeah, yeah, pompous fucker. So, um... <laughs> Yeah, it was, am- and that, I mean, it's also that, you know, like the, the, the one, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, I always have this idea that, like, like on, in the residencia, the Hall of Residence in, in, in Madrid, in the art school, in like 1920 or something, there's, you know, next to each other, there's Pablo Picasso, you know, Louis Bunuel, uh, Salvador mm-hmm. Dali, uh, Juan Miro, uh, and Bruce Springsteen, uh, remarkably enough. <laughs> uh, but- but you wonder whether that coming together of talent, mm. you know, whether they made each other great or, or whether it's some, just some kind of magic, really, you know. But similarly with the, with, with the comic strip, that you get all those people who've, you know, gone on to such, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know such success. It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, the, did we come, to, you know, did we all make, uh, uh, you know, we, did we make each other better? In which case I should get some of the royalties from the Ab Fab <laughs> movie. Um, <laughs> And Jennifer can have some of my, you know, the revenue from my blog about collecting Victorian medical instruments, you know, so... Uh, <laughs> swings and roundabouts. Um, uh, so, you know, did, was there some kind of magic that happened there that brought us all together at that point? Or what, you know, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's just something that, you know, that I kind of find fascinating, really. And yet, just at this moment, just as you're poised for this amazing success, all of you as a group, you tour Australia. <laughs> we then, yes, <laughs> foolishly tour Australia. Yeah, well, we'd um, we'd been invited. <laughs> we'd been invited to the um, Adelaide Festival, in, and so we closed down the Comedy Club, and yeah, came here in um, so that be eighty-two, yeah, January, mm. uh, February, March eighty-two, yeah, and it was just. I mean, in a way, that was. I mean, it was. It was obviously an extraordinary experience in itself, but it was also a time. Uh, when we bonded together, I think that being, you know, in a, in a foreign country so far away, um, you know, really brought us all together as a group, really, and forged a, you know, a very tight kind of unit. Mm, I suppose I feel a little bit of parochial pride when I read that really the young one starts here. Uh, Rick yeah. and Lisa are sitting yeah. here um, in, in, in Sydney and Adelaide and Melbourne, Melbourne ro- yeah. coming up with the idea yeah. of the young ones and writing the scripts. Yeah, well, they, they, because that was, we'd made the pilot uh, of the young ones in the, in the previous winter of 81, and then they had the job of writing the, the rest of the scripts hmm. to be filmed in the summer of 82. And yeah, so they were, they were you know, we, we, they would try and come out with the rest of us, but we would just lock them in their hotel room and say, no, you've got to solidify my career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is, a, in retrospect, a bizarre idea, though, isn't it? You're doing the comic strip films, which uh, you can still watch today. They're fantastic, but they're really way out. You're doing stand-up and these tours. Then suddenly you have a really traditional form, really, which is the sitcom, and that collides in. Why the sitcom? Well, what, I, mean, this, I mean, I was not you know, one of the central creators of The Young Ones, so, but, but, but I mean, uh, I, I think, I mean, there had been attempts made to already adapt because, because alternative comedy started in 1979. I'd invented alternative comedy in 1979. <laughs> and uh, the, first, the first TV show we did was a kind of a, just a, you know, like an, you know, just where we all did our acts with the swear words taken out. And uh, I rang my mother the Yours next day. Yours was very short. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> <Don't>. <laughs> And uh, I rang my mother the next day and said, you know, how, you know, my first TV appearance, how do you think it went? And she said, well, Keith Allen wasn't very good either. (laughs) (laughs) 
But what, so, but that didn't really work, just reproducing, you know, the shows. And what, what they did brilliantly, Rick and Lisa and Ben, with, with the young ones, was they found a TV form that they subverted in the same way that we, we were subverting, deconstructing the cabaret form, you know, that, we, that ostensibly it looked like a cabaret, what we were doing, but it was so much more complex than that, you know, the, the, and, and similarly, what the, that's what they did with the, with, with the sitcom, which was brilliant, really, because it was a TV form, and yet there was, you know, bands in the lavatory, you know, talking vegetables in the fridge and all that. And uh, puppeteers are the strangest people in the world. <laughs> Have you ever met a puppeteer? They're awful odd. I've <laughs> got nothing to say, they're just odd. And... Um, all uh, that, all that, and hazards everywhere. Things keep on exploding, and stare, people fall down. It, it, it looked, I don't know if it was, it looked like it was a very dangerous show to me. Yeah, well, it was. I mean, uh, this, there was no health and safety. There was nothing, you know, there was nothing you could even... And there's, that, there's, that, there's one of the um, shows where Rick lights a stove, and then it explodes and um, it kind of goes into slow motion. And that's, that's not Paul, the, the director, being arty, but it is simply there is only 12 frames of tape that exist before the camera caught fire. <laughs> <laughs> because we had these special effects guys. Never trust a special effects guy who's only got three fingers and an iPad. <laughs> <laughs> and we had these, they were like drunken pirates. They were... Um, and so they, they, they loaded the explosive in the fridge and then we're going to shoot, uh, the, and the cooker, and we're going to shoot it out. And then they went after lunch. They went to the pub for lunch. They came back, forgot that they'd put any explosives in the fridge. And it's absolutely packed it full of one. Then because they were drunk, they thought, oh, well, that's not enough explosive, you know. Let's put some more in. And so this, this fridge is like, you know, throbbing like a kind of, you know, like an IED. And it had just... Um, and boom, they set it off, and Rick, I mean, Rick, I dig, I mean, he caught fire as well and was taken to hospital. And no other, and, um, uh, the, the, I mean, it was also the, the, the one where there's the party, and um, the, the, at the end, all these people are supposed to break in, and they, one, whoever they delegated to hire the extras, they'd hired them from an agency called something like Real Fucking Psychos, you know? They, <laughs> Kind of hung around outside prisons, you know, and go, you want a job? And uh, when those people are so frightening, when they burst in, if you look at that scene, I'm on all fours, crawling off the set at the end of the, <laughs> at the end. Of, so it was, I mean, it was, it was, um, yeah, there was explosions, guns, you know, just, and, you know, mad people as well. And, and, and Dexy's Midnight Runner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on, Eileen. And there is that scene, there is that episode, though, where, Suddenly they're doing uh, University Challenge and all the people are kind of Griff Reese Jones and Emma <laughs> yeah. Thompson. And, and it was odd because in a way all the rhetoric of the show was we are putting the Oxbridge yeah. scene well, behind us. Yeah. Well, that's what I said. I mean, because I mean, it, it was a climactic moment for me, that, because my, my bit as the, the, the revolutionary Biscuits of Italy bit had been filmed separately in the summer. And so I wasn't in the studio that way. So I just went along to, to the recording and when I got to the studio, um, I saw, you know, Griff Rhys Jones, Mel Smith, Emma Thompson, Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie. And I said to, you know, Rick and Lisa, I said, well, yeah, what are these people doing there? These are the enemy, you know, these are the, these, these are the people that we're fighting against. And they said, she said, no, that's just you. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 
And it was, I was I genuinely, because I thought, I don't know, because they'd never, they'd never come along to any meetings or anything, or, you know. I just thought we all shared this. Somehow they were all Maoists like me. And the idea of Dawn Francis and Maoist is, um, you know, they, they didn't at all share my, my, they said that we never subscribe to your class war ravings. Uh, so yeah, it was a bit of a shock that, and then, yeah, I mean, it is a, you know, you are, when, when you're closest uh, conference, when you realize you, you come to that Rubicon, mm -hmm. it's actually quite a kind of, you know, it's, it's something you have to negotiate, really, I think. The, the other uh, little dangerous idea in, in, in this book is uh, you talk about the mainstream comedians and you get to know them, you know, doing these tours of, of, uh, of the halls in, in, in Britain and how the mainstream comedians are pretending to be nice but are actually quite nasty. Yeah. And the people like you who are pretending to be nasty are actually quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You fucking bastard. Yeah, I mean... Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. I mean, it's, the, it's, it's, it's all them, you know, them family-friendly guys, and they were all like... Well, you know, and I don't know how much of the... You know, the, the various uh, sex scandals that have come out of the BBC, uh, uh, you know, recently. Um, you know, they, those guys were just vile, really. They were horrible. And we were all, you know, despite... Despite the violence of our acts, we, um, you know, we were all, you know, relatively, you know, we were nice people. Yeah, yeah they, the, the nice. mainstream ones were actually taking drugs and actually Take having affairs and actually, yeah, yeah, women, you know, do, yeah, uh, you know, sexual harassment and all that. Yeah, and we were all, you know, I, mean, I was married. Peter Richardson was married. You know, uh, reckon. Well, you've been were, married to Linda since 1974. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Been married 43 years. Uh. <laughs> Have you bought her a new motor? <laughs> <laughs> she can't drive, actually, which is, which is annoying. Um, <laughs> you write fantastically about her and you over the years on tour, where she's effectively your, your kind of tour manager and ego stroker and police <laughs> informer. And, um, and, and you write about it as this weird family business. Yeah, well, that was, yeah, we uh, never thought that. That would happen, really. That um, uh, uh, yeah, she's been to every stand. I mean, she's not. She doesn't come out to Australia, but she she's been to every stand-up show that I've ever done, really. And it, you know, I, I say that when I did like a group show, you know, if, uh, or the young ones. Her first job was when I came off stage was to tell me that I was much better than anybody else. <laughs> and, With um, beat your mother, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. 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 Very much the reverse, and um, yeah, she's been. I mean, she's the one who, you know, with I would, I wouldn't have been, my, I wouldn't have been, a, you know, any kind of success without Linda. Really, I would have, you know, um, I don't know what I would have done. Worked in a shop. There was. Um, we used to live in. Um, we used to live in Fulham, and uh, this has got nothing to do with anything really. But there was a, a butcher's there, and it was called. It's funny. It's a kind of indication of how things can change from one day to the next, because it was called Manson's Family Butchers. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. I, I would have, I, I think, I would have been, I mean, the best I would have hoped for would have been, I would have been a very bitter college lecturer, you know, and I would have, I would have taught media studies, and I would say the three greatest films of, um, 
all time were, you know, like Casablanca, Chinatown, and the script I wrote for Miss Marple, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but they messed with my work, they messed with my vision. It's a funny sort of family business, though, isn't it? Yeah, well, I tell you, I have this idea, yes, that... The, the, but it is, it's a little... It's a family enterprise. There's two... Um, you know, there's me and Linda, you know, but our business, rather than being Manson's Family Butchers or, or whatever, our, our business is travelling up and down the country in a van, and then, you know, I go out and shout at 3,000 people, <laughs> and we get back in the van and, you know, go home, and it's like... This is a, we did also have, the, we had a wonderful, the first one, Kenny Smith, the wonderful tour manager who, who I'd previously worked with the Beatles. And it, Kenny was like one of, he, so, what, I mean, there's a, there's a lot about, it, about how terrible British hotels were in the sort of 80s. And the, one that we were doing a gig in Hull and um, uh, my room was horrible. So I rang Kenny and said, oh, yeah, the room's horrible. He said, oh, it's all right, Lex, I'll fix it. And um, so he said, go and sit in the, in, the, in the lobby. And then, so a few minutes later, we're sitting in the lobby and this, through the lobby comes this a, bra, a woman in wedding dress, in a, bra, a bride, carrying two suitcases, <laughs> weeping. <laughs> and Kenny said, I've got you a nice room now, Lex. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, all right, Kenny, great. <laughs> fucking four posts to bed, that's lovely. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, so, so Kenny was there as well, but uh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the clock. We've got about 15 minutes left, so I've got to give you a turn. Um, so we've got two microphones. Uh, if you want to ask a question, jump up now because we are recording the event and we want your beautiful voices to be heard. There's one microphone here. There's one here, and there's, I, I can't see myself, but I think there is one up. Yes, I can now. So there's a big number four there. Um, and a big number three there, I think, and one and two. So if you want to ask a question, come on, run on down now, and we'll do that in about two seconds. So get your questions ready. And, and let, me, let me kind of ask you the, the final one of, of mine, which is, I guess, to reflect on how you've changed because your, your politics, where you have reflected on what you thought when you were 14 and when you were 20 and when you were now, how much it's, it's changed. I mean, there, there are a couple of moments in the book where you think, Oh, I'm surprised you think that. You know, you, <laughs> yeah. say, you say at one point, uh, you know, our beautiful man, Rupert Murdoch, we all love him, don't we? Oh. <laughs> but, you know, he, he does whopping, you know, where he closes down the, the printing presses and sets up a new printing press. And you say, for instance, well, you know, I was actually on Murdoch's side in that. Well, I will, or, that's... Or not supporting... <laughs> not supporting the printers. <laughs> now, well, I mean, well, I was just trying to make a distinction that... Um, because I taught printing apprentices and... They told me about the practices in the print trade, you know, which was they they had to do these, you know, double ups and that, and all the you know, no black people ever got uh, got into the print, and so I didn't um, I, I didn't take part in that struggle. But I wanted to say that, you know, to say there were those epoch or sort of like what they call the Battle of Wapping that I didn't take part of. I did very much. I have to say that I did. You know, I was very very much involved in in the miners' strike and. Uh, you know, I used to, tra I travelled all up and down the country uh, doing, uh, doing shows for the miners, whether they wanted me to or not. <laughs> In fact, I sometimes think the only reason they went back to work. <laughs> I can take another two years of starvation, but uh, that fat bastard comes up here again, I'm fucking... <laughs> Actually, you do a very nice thing in the book about doing left-wing benefit gigs for a very left-wing crowd and how it's a particularly... Uh, interesting experience for a comedian. 
Yeah, because you do a gag and then it'd be, there'd be this time lag where it'd be politically vetted, you know. It's just, <laughs> it's just a fe- and then they'd laugh. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I say it was doing benefits. It was like national service for comedians, you know. You'd, <laughs> you'd do, uh, yeah. I was thinking as well, that a few, sorry, I'm going, uh, the, the, a, a, a few years after, um, after the miners' strike, uh, Equity, the Actors Union, called the strike of voiceover artists. You know, people, I do voiceovers for, you know, I used to do voiceovers for radio and TV commercials. Um, and, um, you know, all through our strike, did those fucking miners support us? <laughs> <laughs> now, your chance for asking questions. Have we got any takers? We've got one up here, number four. Hello, Alexi. Hi, um, how much of your vibrant Marxist heart withered and died when you sold some of the rights to use your song, Hello, John, have you got a new motor, to Toshiba for your advert? <laughs> Hello, Tosh, ah. have you got a Toshiba? Well, yeah, it's... Um... <laughs> oh, I wish I'd uh, that yeah. one. Well, I never, I, I mean, I, I mean, this, this, this. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me, it was Ben Elton. <laughs> he made me do it. <laughs> but, I mean, this, either, this is either self, you know, this is either kind of Kant and self-justification. But I mean, what I, what I always felt was that, I mean, it's, it, one of the things that interested me, again, about the left, one of the, one of the things I meant to say in a way was that, one of the things that fascinated me about the left was that my parents had, because they wanted a better world, they had, they had, um, you know, they turned their blind eye, a blind eye to the you know, incredible injustices. So, so I was interested in that journey of how, um, you know, good people had, had, had come to excuse kind of mass murder, and also the the the, the Brecht show that we did. One of the, the Cliff, the director. Um, he had this thing which was, very, which was very prevalent on the left, because he wasn't frightened of failure, he was frightened of success. And so, like, if anybody who was, could be useful to us came to see the show, he did them. <laughs> like the bloke from the Arts Council. Now, anybody would want to hit a bloke from the Arts Council, but I mean, you preening fucking fop, but... Um, <laughs> But he, I mean, it was a really interesting thing. So the reason that he, the Cliff, I think, feared success was because that he, he didn't want, he wanted to stay pure. That he wanted to avoid those moral compromises that you inevitably have to make, like, um, uh, you know, like selling your song to Toshiba. <laughs> so essentially, what I was doing was not make, getting rich off advertising, but engaging in a kind of political philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, good question, but does the dialectic mean nothing to you? <laughs> um, thanks for asking. Number two. Uh, Alexei, I wanted to ask you uh, in a more contemporary way. Thatcher made you laugh. Um, yeah. Reflecting on the last 40 years, now you've reached a stage of Brexit, and I want to ask you whether Brexit makes you laugh <laughs> and what your take on it is. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's part of a kind of, I mean, these are, intre- I mean, in Britain, these are interesting and, again, febrile times, really. I mean, I don't know how much of you get the, the news, but, I mean, the, the, the middle, Brexit, people had this idea, the middle classes in Britain had this idea that the EU was kind of, 
that was kind of like Glastonbury. You know, it was this wonderful kind of fairy organization. Oh, and it was lovely and peace and love and dancing. And it was, it was a ruthless um, organization that was, you know, it was, it was entirely in hoc to kind of neoliberalism and, and austerity. So I was not, I have no great love for the EU personally, really. Um, the reason that I think the British people no, no, I was shocked by the result, nevertheless. And I, I think that the, the, guess the, 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 the reason that so many people in Britain voted for it is because they felt disenfranchised. And there is, there is this, now this extraordinary thing which is happening with, with, with Jeremy Corbyn where accidentally, or like, like you, you know, with the Occupy movement, which you kind of like, but you kind of, you know, um, you know, when occupied Wall Street or something, and then you kind of went, well, we've occupied, you know, yeah, we've got a bit of street, you know, I've got a tent on a street. You know, where, where does that, how does that advance the struggle, really, you know? <laughs> but suddenly through this accident, the, the, those kind of people, my kind of people, in a sense, got that chance to get their hands, I mean, similar to the way Sanders almost got the nomination in the States. Uh, I, I've forgotten, did you ask me about this? I can't remember now. <laughs> oh, yeah, Brexit. Um, so, yeah. Just extraordinary, um, the, the, my kind of people, or people that, that marginalised, anti-austerity, anti-bankers, anti-neoliberals, have suddenly got their hands on a, a mass political party. And you're seeing the amount of the, the, the lies, the, 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 the vile propaganda which is directed at Jeremy Corbyn, and the, the fact that the sabotage is coming from the MPs and, and so on is... Amazing, you see how much even somebody is, as kind of like doddery, whiskery old fucker like Jeremy is, um, frightens the establishment. The, the, the level of opprobrium is extraordinary, and it's, it's just, it is very exciting to be in Britain at the moment because you get in this, the one moment when there's a chance to really just to, to have a political party that represents uh, me and the eight people that I know. <laughs> 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 uh. <laughs> Number one here. Um, you talked about uh, the violence inherent in your act. Why? I'd be interested in your views on why violence is funny. Um, I never, yeah, I never really thought about. It. I mean, it's, it's. Um, I, I mean, it just is really. I mean, I've never been. <laughs> that's just. It's just funny. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's always, there's always been like, you know, violence in comedy and, you know, uh, you know, the slapstick and all those classic movies are, you know, and I mean, and you've seen something like Laurel and Hardy, the, the tremendous violence that they visit on, on each other. And, we, and I think, I mean, I think ultimately, um, the, you know, the, there is something quite, I mean, this is getting terribly pretentious, but there is something quite sacred about the role of the comedian, and that's what... I mean, for example, that I think, you know, although clearly I, I support, I mean, I, I um, uh, you know, I, 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 I've, ne I, I've never felt able to attach myself to a, a, part, a political party because I think we have to be free to critique. I mean, I do, so what I do is I do single causes like Palestine. I'm very keen on animal rights, you know. People often criticise us animal rights activists because we uh, kind of criticise, uh, you know, we concentrate on fair uh, rather than leather, you know, but I always say, well, it's much easier to pick on an old lady than a biker gang. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I suppose, so I think the violence is in a sense a kind of licensed kind of, um, uh, you know, like the Lord of Misrule, really, that, we, that it's a pressure valve. The comedy is a, the comedy is a, is a pressure valve. I mean, I, I quote this in the book. I, I think it's a terrible mistake to think that comedy can ever be directly political or affect political. And I think the greatest line, when Peter Cook opened his establishment club in the 1960s in, in Soho in London, he said he wanted it to replicate the cabaret bars in Weimar, uh, Germany in the 30s, which had done so much to, to stop the rise of Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> But we are, we're, we're licensed, you know, for that, yeah, for that kind of, that, I think and that's what, that's what the violence is about, really, a kind of license. And also, you know, and, you know we speak, we have, we speak, we speak truth mm-hmm. to power, you know, that is the sacred role of the, I also shout at the man on the meat counter in Sainsbury's, but that's something else, but, um, <laughs> you know, it is the sacred role of the comic. Is to, is to, but it was interesting, just that when you were talking about Jeremy Corbyn, you spoke quite sincerely about your belief that, that Corbyn is, uh, is, is onto something, but then you immediately undercut it with what, what's the other side of the story, which is that maybe he, he, he can't win an election because not enough people are in that club. So it was interesting to watch you do just that, actually. Yeah, yeah, well, I can't, I mean, I can't... Um, I mean, I am, you know, terribly enthusiastic uh, about... I mean, it's... Um, it's it, you know it's also a, a chance for, for for somebody with a beard to uh, <laughs> I, uh, I haven't told this story before I don't know how it would go down but um, I had I had a, recently I had a fight with a prostitute in a, in um, <laughs> in King's Cross in London I was walking back to my car late at night and this girl off her face she um, she accosted me and asked me if I wanted business and I said no and I tried to rushed past her and she um, thought that, you know, kind of, you know, she took umbrage of that and she called me a Santa Claus-faced motherfucker. <laughs> oh, I want to see her act. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know, it's a good line, yeah. wasn't she's it? A new, she's the new MC of the comedy store. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how we got, we got four minutes left. Number four. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to hear your opinion on Russell Brand and his sort of running political commentary? Um, well, I think, I mean, one of the things that surprised me, in a sense, was when, you know, when the, um, when the, re- you know, the collapse happened in 2008, the recession happened, that nobody really took on the mantle of, um, you know, critiquing that nobody really, I thought that the, immediately, just out of self-interest, that there'd be this kind of uprush mm-hmm. of, of, of political kind of anti establishment comics and um, there wasn't really and the one you know the one person who tried to take it on I think was uh, was Russell Brand really I mean and he I don't think he really in the end he kind of retired hurt I think um, I mean he did say at one point and I know he corrected this but at one point he said don't vote yeah I mean I think he I mean he himself admitted he was intoxicated with you know people Taking him seriously. I don't know why, what you've. Um, you know, and he just went, I mean, he interviewed Ed Miliband, the, uh, yeah. the leader of the opposition and stuff, and he just thought, for, you know, he. I mean, he's, he's also, a, I mean, he, he is, um, you know, he's got a lot of. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think how to put this politely. Um, he's got a lot of character quirks, really, Russell. <laughs> Uh, you know, he's got a lot of things wrong with him, in a sense. And so that... <laughs> fucking Nancy boy prancing. 
Fucking, I do the political stuff. Um, <laughs> taking bread out of my cat's mouth. <laughs> Don't know, God bless him for trying, you know, and it, it, it is, you know, but it went a bit sideways, I think, really. I don't know, what do you feel about him, just to... No, I feel the same, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, he's got a beautiful use of the language, though. Yes, yeah, he's a good, yeah. He's a, you know, he's, he can be funny, you know, but it, it, it was interesting, he just, I think he kind of went crazy just with that. Oh, you can see that it was about, is, is also that thing about taking on politics and thinking that he was going to, revo- you know, mm-hmm. Found, find a new kind of politics was about his own ego. He needs to read the Peter Sellers quote. Yeah, Peter Cook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he needs to take that in mind. Really, we, yeah. we, just to finish, we, I mean, we started with Molly yeah. uh, and her unbelievable kind of rages and, and critique and all that. Did, once, you, once you were seriously funny, once you were on top of the pops and all that stuff with the, with the Motor Song, once the young ones and, I don't know, Alexi Sell's stuff, which was huge here and I'm sure in England, once all that happened... Was she finally impressed? I did a, a reading of um, the first volume, um, Stalinette, My Homework Memoir, before it was published in, a, in an art centre in Liverpool in 2010, I think it was. And Molly came along in a wheelchair and she heckled me. <laughs> <laughs> Shouted, lies! <laughs> <laughs> That's your answer. There's a moment in this book, though, where, where you say, where, as a younger man, you say, I'm famous, Mum. Yeah, I'm famous. And she said, she say, I'm famous too. And so she say, she say, I'm famous for my quiche. <laughs> it wasn't even true. <laughs> Please thank Alexi Sale. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.